0: hey guys it's another week of girl boss radio from panoply it's me sophia Amoruso, the founder of nasty gal the author of girl boss the author of nasty galaxy where am i i don't know where in the world i am right now because i'm recording this long before it happens because i'm promoting my second book nasty galaxy which at this point i really hope is a new york times bestseller it may not be and that's okay i'm not that disappointed don't cry for me It's on sale now, so you can totally like help that. And maybe I won't cry if you <laughs> if you go to, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Nasty Gal. Anywhere books are sold, you can find Nasty Galaxy. It's super pretty and it's actually not that expensive. Um, for tour dates to find out where I am, if I've already come to your city, if I'm about to come, you can go to girlboss.com and click on books. On this podcast, I interview different women every week um, who I find inspiring. So what I learned from writing Girlboss and just telling my story is that – storytelling is really important. And all I did was share stuff that I did and it inspired other people. So why shouldn't other women's stories be inspiring? And they are. And that's the genesis of this podcast. And each woman has something really special to share. We chart her from her beginnings and what she learned along the way, her successes and failures, what that word even means, and then how she got to where she is today. I try to extract advice for you guys and pull out productivity hacks and other Great jewels for all of us to feast on. So let's get to the interview. When Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter was asked to serve as the first female director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department, it was her dream come true. She left her tenured position at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and her family and commuted weekly to Washington, D.C. to work under then Secretary of State and current presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. But between the grueling hours, a rigid work schedule, and raising two teenage sons at home, Anne-Marie was struggling. She ultimately left the State Department after two years to return to a full workload at Princeton. She wrote about the difficulty of women achieving work-life balance in her widely read Atlantic article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which became one of the magazine's most read articles in its history. She continued this conversation with her book, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, and Family, which is now out in paperback. In late 2013, she left Princeton to assume the presidency of the New America Foundation. We're honored to have Anne-Marie join us in our studios here in New York. Anne-Marie, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. And I start the podcast with the same question every episode, which seems like a small thing, but everybody has a start, and I think it's important to just call out where we all get our start and – that question is, what was your first job? It could have been a high school job, not necessarily a career job, but
1: for some people that is their first job. My first job was being a parking lot attendant at a shopping center in Charlottesville, Virginia. It oh was gosh. after my sophomore summer, I think, in high school. And my job was literally to go around and look at cars And cars that had the same license plate who were there, you know, overnight. (laughs) I was supposed to do something with them. It was staggeringly boring. Oh my god, (laughs) that sounds really awful. So boring.
0: (laughs) For some reason, I imagine you
1: being really good at it, though. Um, Oh, I don't know. I was, I was bored and. I th- then got myself a job in a bookstore on Saturdays and I loved oh, cool. that. and I, I was good at yeah. that but th- this was a really good demonstration of this is what you could end up doing if you don't work hard in school and have totally. ambition.
0: Totally. Um I loved working in bookstores. I only worked in oh. one I guess, but yeah, something about like alphabetizing and categorizing things is just
1: like Oh, and, and it's, it's so you fun. know books are my friends. They I I really I've often thought if, you know, if everything crumbled and I was, you know, I had to sort of figure out what to do toward the end of my life, I'd be perfectly happy in an independent bookstore.
0: Yeah, I think me too. Um, And your paper, the paperback of your book, Unfinished Business, just came out. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, paperback. It's like exciting. A lot of people don't understand that a paperback version of a book coming out is actually not – Super common that it means that, like, the book did really well, and did, That's yeah. true, yeah, it's like it's like a big deal,
1: yeah. I wrote a q and a for for the paperback edition, which was fun,
0: oh, awesome. And so, what was your first job out of college? You went to Princeton, so I imagine it was a pretty decent job.
1: <laughs> well, I actually just stayed in school until I was thirty. Amazing. I was planning to get a job. I Actually, I had applied for a couple scholarships, uh, you know, like the Rhodes and the Marshall, these big scholarships at Oxford, and I didn't get them. And so senior winner, you know, I went home for the holidays and I thought, well, I'm going to go to work. And I was getting ready to go to Washington and try to get a job as some kind of intern or aide or, you know, the various kind of policy type jobs you can get. And then I went back to Princeton, and a week later got notified that I had won something called the Sachs Scholarship, hmm. which is two years in Oxford. It's given in memory of a Rhodes Scholar, and it's the same idea. You get two years uh, at Oxford uh, paid for. And I then got a master's in international relations, and then I went back to law school. And I did work for a couple summers as a law student, because that's what you do as a, a law student. And then, though, instead of taking a job at a law firm, I realized I really didn't want to practice big corporate law. And so I stayed at Harvard and enrolled in a Ph.D. program at Oxford. I never went back to Oxford and spent the next four years working on a Ph.D. and working for various law professors and and trying to support myself however I could. So uh, I stayed in school a long time.
0: I know. It's like a really productive form of loitering or something, like yeah. a very, very prestigious <laughs> type of loitering. Um,
1: I guess, although I think it made me sort of I, – when I look at all the people now, I think I should have taken more risks. I really should have. I should have gotten out there and tried something new, but it worked out, although I never expected to be an academic, and that's where I ended up.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And so your first job out of college was as a professor um, yes. at the University of Chicago? Law school? Yes.
1: Yeah. University of Chicago Law School. Yes, that was I mean, again, other than summer jobs, my first real year long paying job was as an assistant professor at, at Chicago.
0: And what was that like to move out of being taught and, you know, now have a Ph.D. and move into the world of academia from the side of being a, an assistant professor?
1: I loved law teaching. I really did. I, again, I had never expected to do it. I thought I thought being an academic would be just not active enough for me. Uh but being a law teacher is different than say being a political scientist. You're it's a profession. You're teaching students who are not graduate students are going to be just like you. They're people who are going to go out and and work and I really loved it. I was terrified before my first class. I was very frightened of public speaking, which people Mm -hmm. don't believe now, but was really true. And so the night before my first class, I went to the empty room at the law school and went in. I still remember the night watchman giving me this weird look and just talked to an empty room for about Uh 40 minutes because I was so afraid my voice wasn't going to come out the next day. Uh And, you know— It worked. It was fine. I got up the next day and got up there and learned a lot early on when you're young and you're female and you're a professor. And at that point, it was 1990. It was almost all men. You Mm -hmm. had to really learn how to assert yourself because I definitely had what I thought of as the boys in the back. Yeah. (laughs) You know, who would rough me up if I let them? How do you get over nerves with public speaking? Because I know there's
0: listeners of this podcast who are probably encountering public speaking for the first time. I'm someone who's had to do it so many times and it still terrifies me. And when this podcast does air, I'll be on my my book tour for my second book. What advice do you have for someone who is entering a room full of people and has to speak to them? Just start talking.
1: So it really is like the, the thing about how do you get to Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, practice. You you uh-huh. just have to keep doing it until there comes a time, and I really was terrified. I mean, heart pounding, sweaty palms, shaky hands, everything terrified. Mm-hmm. But I kept doing it. I had to. I was a teacher. And gradually, it, toward my late 30s, there came a point where I realized this is just like talking, just like you and I are talking now, and you're not worried that your, you know, voice is going to freeze up or your brain's not going <laughs> to deliver something to say, right? Uh-huh. We talk all the time. No, I drink my caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yes, caffeine is necessary, but once that happens, and it happened for me actually when I, the first time I I went without notes because I would use notes, but then I'd get I'd look up and start talking, and then lose my place in my notes and I then would be embarrassed. And so I, at some point I just said, you know, I'm just not going to use notes. I'm going to think to myself, there are three points in my head and I'm going to just talk. And once I realized I could do that, and I got more and more confident. And then now, you know, I can stand up in front of any size crowd. There's always a little bit of just a tiny bit of nerves right before. And if you didn't feel that, you wouldn't be human. I mean, just mm-hmm. the adrenaline kicks in. So so right before, you know, there's always that just heightened sense of awareness or, or kind of nerves, I guess. Uh, but then when I get out there... It's just as if I were talking to you, except I'm connecting to an audience. Mm -hmm. But it took a long time, and I don't know how many thousands of speeches I've given. But I would just tell people it will get better. Just keep doing it. And so
0: you taught at the University of Chicago, and you say you love teaching law and that it's different from political science. I'm just so curious. What about teaching law is is so different from political science? Is it because people are going out and applying what you're teaching them so actively through the practice of law and that something like political science is in some ways like more philosophical or applied in a greater variety of ways? Like what would you say it is? Yeah,
1: that, that's an interesting question. So I think that start at the graduate level. The professional schools, law, business, medicine, You are teaching people who are not going to be academics. So that means – I mean a few of them will be, but most of them do have a different cast of mind. When you're teaching Ph.D. students in political science or history or economics, you are teaching replicas of yourself. Right, you are teaching people who came to get a PhD because they want to be an academic, and one way to put it is they often prefer books to people. <laughs> that's you know that's how you mm-hmm. become a good academic. Whereas teaching you know teaching law students, a lot of them are aspiring politicians. They're former debaters. They're people who want to do human rights law. They're people who you know imagine themselves as a senior partner in a firm. So it's a A wider variety of types of students, more like teaching undergraduates. Hmm. But the other thing that's so great is I did use the Socratic method. You know, I, I... I wasn't like paper chase. I wouldn't stand up there and humiliate anybody, but I definitely called on people, you know, and when, whether you were expecting it or not, and I would – you'd answer, and I'd ask you another question, and you'd answer, and I'd ask you another question. And that really – it's a high-energy form of teaching. It's hard to do well, but it, it can really be fun. And I think for the students as well, although I did periodically have students say, I got slaughtered today.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, no. It's like, it's a very, it is, you have an intimidating name. You have two first names and then a really intimidating last name. Um, And you mentioned that in 1990, when you went into teaching, that, you know, it was kind of like a boys club and that you really had to hold your own and you had to learn how to assert yourself. What would your advice be to someone who's entering a new world and, you know, may be intimidated or may be around people who seem to be like cronies or
1: experts and has to, you know, prove themselves? Yeah. So I think the, the, the most important thing I learned early was ju- don't let them see you sweat or doubt yourself. And I remember the day I realized that when a student asked me a question and I didn't know the answer, I didn't have to say, I don't know the answer. I could say, hmm, great question. Let's come back to that (laughs) and then Mm -hmm. never come back to it. Or, hey, you know, (laughs) let's put that one on the shelf. And this I do think is deeply gendered because I think women are often taught to be confessional. We connect to people by acknowledging our vulnerabilities. If you think about many of your close friends – you know, you, this is how you disarm people, how you connect to people, and relationships are often our stock in trade. Boys are taught, you know, whatever you're feeling, hide it. Now, too much so, I think, as the mother of sons, but mm-hmm. the happy medium is somewhere in between. And one of the things I definitely learned was to project confidence I didn't feel. Yeah, and as far as I know, most of the men in my life are projecting confidence. I, the ones I know well, I know they don't feel it, but they're socialized. Uh, I always say more like the you know a puffer fish or something when you're when totally. you're feeling nervous. You know, puff up and and if anything, be more assertive. So, yeah. uh, learning that, learning to speak in a loud voice, uh, a definitely. Uh, I often say when people say I'm a good public speaker, I, th- I say half of that's because they could hear me, <laughs> and that was important. And I did. I think I lowered my voice. Um, I'm pretty sure if you if you'd taken soundings when I started teaching and later, and I learned to project physically. So you know, walking around the room, I used to dress to teach. It made me feel sort of older. I was just thirty. Uh, mm-hmm. And that helped, you know. On teaching days, I would be, uh, you know, dressed professionally, and that was like, this is my job. Mm-hmm. And then later, my husband really taught me. He, he caught me out in what we now all know—the kind of way that women apologize when they start speaking. And I, I remember once we were in a seminar together, and I opened my comments by saying, "I'm not an expert, but I think." And my husband <laughs> said. If you're not an expert, why should I listen to you? Why would you ever tell a room full of people that you're not an expert? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just don't do that. And he 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 taught me a lot of those kinds of tricks that I yeah. now try to pass on to others.
0: It's so interesting, you know, because on some level, you know, we're still in a world where to it is a man's world and to survive in a man's world, um, it doesn't hurt to take on some of the traits that have been traditionally uh, prescribed to men And, you know, it's like, at what point, like, does, does that begin to shift? It feels like it's starting to shift, but at the same time, like, women will still be penalized, whether or not public perception is changing about a woman being a little bit more vulnerable than a man, like, in the way she describes her ability or anything else. I'm someone who is a little confessional, and I, I've never really thought about that being like a gendered thing and i think in a lot of ways it very much is but it's also in some ways generational um because that's like what social media like asks of us and it's (laughs) something that's become a lot more rewarded but at the same time you know i've definitely uh eaten my words by not playing my cards closer to my chest and given other people an opportunity to have something i mean actually sometimes nothing but Uh, hold something over my head or use what I have shared against me and so that's like the double edged sword I think of I don't know being vulnerable in what you do and allowing people to know you and I mean in academia there's really no place for that so you're lucky in other areas it's a little maybe more expected to share like bits of your personal life and Well, although students –
1: I mean it's interesting. Students have different expectations of women professors that – male professors and women professors talk about this all the time that, for instance, if a man says, I've got two hours of office hours a week and the rest of the time I'm working, typically people say, yes, well, he's writing his great article and he's going to get tenure. When a woman says the same thing, she's much more likely to be dinged uh, on evaluations for not being accessible. And part of that is students expect you to be nurturing because you look more like their mother than their father. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: And so women uh, often uh, talk about how – Really, students have these different expectations subconsciously. They don't realize it. Uh, but And similarly, if you are tough on students, you are much more likely to get the B word, right? Whereas a guy is praised for being tough. And these are the double standards we see on display in this election year all the time. I actually think it is desirable for professionals, men and women, to learn to – project themselves professionally to to keep some things to themselves. There's stuff that belongs in the office and there doesn't for women and men. But equally, I think men are better off if they're not taught to be playing a role all the time. And my son, uh, the younger of my two sons, said to me last year he'd had a really bad time on something, and uh, I was traveling, and so he called me and and then later I I said well did your girlfriend come over last night and he said yeah and I said well did you, you know were you okay and and cuz he'd been really upset and he looks at me and he says mom it's 2015 Guys can cry. It's okay. Oh my
0: God. <laughs> that like makes me so happy. <laughs>
1: yeah. But he was like schooling me. He was like, because I was, I, you know, he'd been really upset and I wasn't sure how his girlfriend had handled it. And he was just like, it's 2015. Like I could cry. It's okay. Oh my God. And that's I do so think.
0: Cute. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, and I do think that's better off. Again, you know, both sides can come, come a ways toward the other.
0: So you, after you became a professor, you then moved over to Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public International Affairs. Um, and I know that you went from that to working for um, the State Department and then back. And you wrote an essay about this experience, which was called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. That was written in 2012. Do you feel like anything's changed since 2012? There's such a big conversation happening about women now. Um, it's become oh, like a I, very, yeah. you know, zeitgeisty thing.
1: No, I think a lot of things have changed. My own thinking has changed dramatically, which is why this this book is quite different than the article. But I think just more generally, when I wrote that article, Sheryl Sandberg had a TED talk on Lean In, but Lean In hadn't been published, so it wasn't nearly as well known as it then became, uh, and that obviously, and I think my article put these issues back in the forefront of public consciousness with lots of women my age and older saying, I can't believe we're still talking about this, mm-hmm. but a whole other generation uh, discovering that even though uh, you know, millennial girls uh, were raised to believe they could do anything, many of them once they Uh, You know, get married or settle down and have kids. Discover whoa, the workplace still hasn't really changed, and this this is not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. And so those issues, I think, are back on the table. I think for the first time in this presidential election, things like family leave and daycare are actually being talked about, and that's Mm -hmm. a first uh, in my life. So we're getting there. It's exciting. Uh,
0: it, it, yeah. It's so exciting. So tell me about your essay and the response to that and what prompted that because I know, you know, that struggle, that work-life balance was something that you had struggled with, which everybody struggles with whether or not there's policy changes or it's never going to be perfect. Um, nobody yeah. can Nobody <laughs> can have it all. And that's like not a myth right? that, that you made up. That's a response to a myth that just kind of pervades culture. Um, yes. What prompted, you know, writing that essay? What was happening in your life at the time?
1: So the, you know, the the origins of the essay were that I had gone to Washington thinking, well, of course I can make this work. I mean, I was leaving two kids with my husband, two sons who were uh, at that point 12 and 10. And... You know, I thought I'll make it work. I've always made it work, and and I used to tell younger women, you can just do it. You just have to want it badly enough. And then, you know, my son hit teenage years, and he really started making bad choices. And I was spending a lot of time in Washington, either on the phone to him or. Uh, You know, occasionally taking the train back up in the middle of the week and on the weekends, trying to deal with him and and support my husband who was in the front lines. And it was clear that really he he was going in the wrong direction and my husband was doing the best he could, but we needed both parents. And it really challenged my own narrative. I started realizing, wait a minute – you know, I'm going to have to make a choice here. I was not going to leave my job um, before two years because I was the first woman in the job, and two years is the minimum time that people like me, professors, go into office. You have two years of public service leave. So I was not going to leave before then. And this was the, as the director of policy planning and for the U.S. State Department. You were the first female director. Yes. Yes. Cool. I was the first – and, and it's a big job and a big think job, and I was very proud to have it.
0: Under Secretary Clinton, no less. Yes, yes.
1: Under Secretary Clinton, who was a great boss. And I was learning a whole new set of skills. And really in the back of my mind, I'd thought, even though my leave is up after two years, if I get a chance to be promoted, I'll stay. Because all the jobs above that job are fabulous jobs. And that's sort of the deal that my husband and I had tacitly thought about. We didn't we, did, we didn't know if I'd succeed or not. But when time came, I realized I really had to go home. I could have put myself up for a promotion to a really terrific job. And I said, no. I said, I've got to go home. And that then started me thinking about this narrative of, of course, you can have it all. You just have to want it enough. You have to work hard enough. You and your husband or your wife can make it work. And I thought, you know, I had everything. I had money and a housekeeper and a lead parent husband and a great boss, and I couldn't make it work. And so we actually need to rethink this. And I wanted to call the article, why women can't have it all, dot, 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 yet, meaning here are all the changes we still have to make. In the end, uh, for a variety of reasons, The Atlantic wanted to call it why women still can't have it all. And the only irony of that is many people read that as it'll never work. And so I've become this poster child for it's just impossible. I don't believe that. I think it is perfectly possible to have work and family. But we got to make a lot of changes. And this has to be as much an issue for men as for women.
0: Absolutely. What do you think those changes are? And what, what changes will happen at like the policy level? Um, that we can control by obviously participating in government. But on a more personal level, what do you think those changes are within a relationship and, um, and in the workplace?
1: So I think it starts with something very fundamental, which is I was raised to believe that my father's work was important and my mother's work was necessary but not valuable, uh, in the sense that I wanted to be a lawyer, like my father, uh, or a doctor or an engineer, you know, all those those income breadwinning jobs, those are important. Uh, but those caregiving jobs, you know, the, all the work my mother did of raising us, of making a home, of caring, you know, sort of weaving the family together, that that wasn't important work. And I now don't believe that. And I think we all have to go through, re- you know, we have to re-socialize ourselves and think about it and think, wait a minute, you know, the work of raising children, the work of caring for your own parents when they need it, if you have a spouse who is ill or a sibling, that work, that work of investing in in the people you love, it is work. It may be wonderful, but it is work. And we have to value it as much as we value the work that brings in an income. And we have to value it in our own lives, and we have to value it when other people do it. So now when a woman or a man says to me, you know, I'm slowing down, I'm working part-time, I've got young kids at home or teenagers at home, now I say, you know, you're doing really important stuff. And I mean that. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to change the way we think, change the way we talk. Because right? we, we act like everybody – we talk about stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads like they're just sitting around at home all day as opposed to saying they're lead parents. And we have to start expecting that the men in our lives should be expected to give care as much as we now expect all women to earn an income. Because we expect all women to be able to earn an income and be self-reliant. I do. But we give guys a pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um I mean, it's
0: such a tough balance, especially when a woman is the breadwinner. And that's something that I've experienced in past relationships and have struggled with and have yep. been, you know, generous and sometimes overly generous. And, you know, there's no family yet. So it's kind of like, yep. it's all it was all kind of like building up to something that ended up for me not really uh coming to fruition. And then you look back and it's like, I don't even, you know, it was like creating a, trying to create a balance for something that didn't have a counterweight, you know? Yeah. And um, it's just, you know, both parties bringing weight to the table, whether it is in the home or at work, I think is incredibly important and something that doesn't happen without an insane amount of communication. And (laughs) I think everybody's probably trying to figure that out, um, but it takes very... Very self-aware team players, I think, to probably get that right Um, among among all the things that need to change in culture and, you know, in policy and the world at large. But just beyond that, I think it's just a major, major exercise for the average couple to even begin to approach what balance looks like. Do you believe in the word
1: balance? yeah I don't i I try now not to talk about having it all because I think it sounds selfish because you're like scarred. On, but... <laughs> yeah. and I try to and I try to not um talk about balance because I think I talk about fit, which is actually something uh, a number of people, have written books talk about fitting things together because I think that's actually more accurate. It's rarely balanced. you're You're always tipping in one direction or another but i do talk about fitting your your work and your your family life together i think it takes a lot of confidence on the part of men to s- take a role that has traditionally been seen as not masculine mm-hmm. in other words if you if the you know the woman is the bigger breadwinner that's hard my husband has a lot of confidence and i've seen him uh, you know, have to st- bear all sorts of assumptions, you know. And when I grew up, it was, oh, well, your wife wears the pants in the family. Well, no, <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's not true. But then a lot of that's still out there. So it takes yeah. a lot of confidence and it takes, yes, as you're right, communication and, and a s- sort of determination that we're going to do it the way that works for us, regardless of what society says and regardless of what our in-laws may think. And that's going to change a lot over time, too. I mean, we've been through periods where we were really equal parents, and then we've been through periods where he was lead parent. We've never been through a period where I was lead parent, except maybe one year on sabbatical. But... I think it helps if you think of yourselves as forging a new path.
0: I think you're thought lead parenting. I think you can yeah. like be safe, safely say that you're <laughs> you're lead parenting in a in a in a way that's affecting a, a whole lot of people. Um, well, we'll see. It's so funny how, as a woman, if you have an opinion or you talk about relationships or being a breadwinner or maybe not being a lead parent that you're just characterized as this man eater or something like you yeah. sh- are this like intimidating <laughs> you know I'm on the cover of girl boss with my hands on my hips in like a power pose and not smiling too much and I think people think that I'm like you know I have severe bangs you know okay but it doesn't <laughs> mean that like I'm not friendly or like totally like girly and affectionate and like all these other things I'm just I don't know. It's just – it's so crazy. And so, you know, I'm entering a new relationship now and I'm just – I'm not – only I I think women talking about relationships is kind of like uh, passe, but it's just become a theme in my life. And I'm so – the last girl who like talks about relationships on her podcast and I'm not even going to talk about (laughs) relationships. But I'm just going to ask you, you know, I am – Seeing someone who is really ambitious and really talented, which is really refreshing. And I would just love some advice from you on how to how to just in the very beginning, even how to try to make that work. Like,
1: how do you make that work?
0: Is that even possible? Brad and Angelina.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. That really broke my heart. I, it's funny, it broke my, one of my sons, my older son texted me and he was just broken hearted. Oh my God. They, you know, he, it really, they stood for something important. And I used to use that example all the time of, look, you know, she's directing a film and he's got the kids and he's in a film and she's got the kids. And that's, why can't you do it that way? Uh, and looks like that, even that didn't work. You know, I think... I think it's very important to talk up front about your mutual ambition. Because what I've seen happen a lot is a couple starts out and they're equally ambitious and they're equally committed to their career. And they both assume they're going to support each other's career. But it has never actually occurred to the man that supporting her ambition might mean deferring his. That is not something that he ever sees or really contemplates. Mm -hmm. Whereas she's seen plenty of examples of women who then defer their ambitions once they have children – and she may not want to do it, but when a choice has to be made, where there does come this moment where if you both have big jobs, someone has to be there. You have to drive your kids around. You can pay for other people to do it, but you have to be at teacher-parent conferences. You have to be at ball games. I mean, you you really, and you want to be. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, she steps into a role that is, she doesn't want but is all too familiar. So my advice early on is to start having really open conversations. In fact, in the book, I give a bunch of questions that I think you should ask your prospective spouse. Ooh. But I think it's got to be – you know, you got to say things like, hey, look, if we're both in our careers and, and I get this great promotion but it's in another city, will you move for me? And he doesn't have to say yes or she, but assume it's a he. He doesn't have to say yes, but he at least has to say, well, that's something I'd think about. And if he looks at you like, well, no, you know, I'm not going to leave my career for yours, then that's not going to be equal. Mm -hmm. And look, I'm attracted to high-powered, ambitious men but i did know that when i married my second husband my husband whom i love i knew that i probably had more fire in the belly than he did he was he he was an alpha male without any question but but i did know that probably you know if you ask me how i thought about my career i just i'm just more ambitious and probably on my first marriage i wouldn't have made that trade off but i had I had some experience. and you know, and even so, my husband and I have spent, you know, years arguing about who's going to do what all the time. but i I think it's important to know yourself and understand that either you both make accommodations or one of you is going to, and they're going to really resent the other one
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it's um it's still a world where, men are seen as attractive when they're successful and women are just kind of scary, you know, like yeah. some of us are <laughs> undateable yeah. and thank god I'm not at this point, you know, in my life, but who knows? You know, it's like it's still not that cute for you know, like a lot of guys that's they're they're looking for something else. They're looking for like a an assistant or something, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um I so, think, but I think younger men are changing. If I look at my sons sense. and their friends, my sons have absolutely no problem with future w- women who are going to out earn them. In fact, I think they're counting on it, uh, because they both want to be artists. But I think, I do think it, it's different, right? If you grew up and your mother was just as powerful as your father, then you may, first place, you're used to really smart, powerful women around you. And maybe that's more likely something you'll look for.
0: And so. Today, you're the president and CEO of New America, which sounds so interesting. And I don't even think I could give it merit by trying to describe what New America is myself. Can you tell our listeners what New America is and what you've been doing there since 2013?
1: Yes. So New America is an organization of really smart, committed, interesting people who really want to renew America right? I mean, they're, we are, they're, they're thinkers, they're writers, they're researchers, uh, they're advocates, they're community organizers. And what binds us all together is a commitment to big ideas. We re- really think that America needs big new ideas, uh, a big focus on technology. Most of the people at New America are either technologists themselves or tech savvy. And we, we think look, the solutions to a lot of America's problems are going to. Require uh, really using all these new technologies, and we're we we're really committed to to telling stories and and engaging the public. So we have lots of journalists, lots of writers. Uh, the New America Weekly is a really great digital magazine, and we have offices in New York and in Washington, and just opened New America California, and we hope we'll open New America Chicago. Uh, and we're we think it is a very important moment for the country. And I should say we are not left or right. We go for ideas independent of what side of the aisle they may come from.
0: So you're basically the president and CEO of the future of this country. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'll put that on my business That's pretty <laughs> cool. Has running for uh, office of any kind
1: ever crossed your mind? Do people ask you about that? People do ask me about it, and it has crossed my mind, except that this is where our system is so broken, because if I lived in Britain, in Britain, election campaigns are six weeks long and publicly financed. So I would definitely do that, because then you could be in government and make a difference. But here, when I think about it, I think that is giving my life over to nothing but asking other people for money, day in and day out not only when I'm running, but when I'm in office. And that just doesn't seem like a, a, a trade-off worth making.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you're certainly qualified. So I think you're the first person with like a presidential resume, maybe, that's been on this podcast. Um, amazing. Um, so you've spent a lot of time in academia. Yeah, I mean, a lot. And we have a lot of college students, people maybe thinking about grad school, maybe even PhDs, women listening to this podcast. What do you think about Higher education and where we are today uh, in 2016, and if that's necessary.
1: I think higher education is being and will be even more disrupted in the next decade. It's an overused word, but this just the this idea that higher education is something that you do for four years on a campus, between the years of 18 and 22, just doesn't make any sense. And this is one of New America's big ideas. The uh, head of my education program wrote a book called The End of College, and he didn't mean that actually college would go away, but what he meant was this generation is going to have higher education lifelong from multiple sources with measurable outcomes. And it may be that you take a certificate course online and you get a badge or you get a certificate that gets credit. It may be that you go to a you know a local uh, institution to just take a couple of courses. It may be that you work for a while much longer, uh, say, to your thirty, and then when you decide to have kids, you decide to actually enroll. Uh, in a in a school. But I tell my own kids, one who's in college and the other I hope uh, he will be, that really, um, if they want to take time out, if they find work they love, um, I'm not concerned that they have to get educated right now. And I tell kids who have great jobs, uh, you'll, you know, particularly out of college who are thinking of, of graduate school, but sometimes uh, in the middle of college, if they have good jobs and they're learning things, I say it's okay. Go, go and learn on the job because you will still be able to get educated.
0: So you're not only a scholar; you're a wife, mother, author, doctor, academic, president, and CEO. Guest on Girl Boss Radio. You've been, you've <laughs> seen so much. You've been witness to so much. You know, in politics, in education. Um, and at home, and I'm sure there has been, a, you know, a lot of struggles in there, like deep in there. What do you think the toughest thing that you've done in your career as as any of those titles
1: has been? Oh goodness, that's a, no one's ever asked me that question. Um, well, one of the toughest things is unquestionably having to fire people. I mean, that is part of being a leader, whether yeah. it's in government or. Uh, as a dean or now running an organization, uh, you have to make tough decisions. And I think, you know, particularly if you are empathic and you feel deeply connected to people, it's very hard to do that. It's hard to make the decision and it's it's hard to have the conversations. Uh, and I would say it has, I'm thinking about, you know, the the their moments of parenting also where I think the toughest ones are where you have to do things that are going to mean your kids don't like you, right? Totally. And I think particularly when we don't – I don't have enough time with my kids and, and they certainly know how to push those buttons. And so it's really hard to do the things you know are the right things to do, but they're really hating you for it, whether you're grounding them for you know a month or you're – Whatever it might be and my uh, so so I think in both ways the the hard things are where your emotions push you one way and your rational mind or simply what you know to be true over the longer term, whether it's this is better for the organization or this is better for you, you'll you'll come to appreciate it. Those are hard moments.
0: I mean, that's I guess that's where leadership comes in. Um, Yes. And you've had so much exposure. I mean, you are a leader, but you also worked under Secretary Clinton. What leadership advice? I mean, this is so broad, but just leadership tips for the newbie Mm -hmm. in, you know, who's who's coming into her own, who may have her first few employees, um, who's just staring at these people being like, who put me in charge? How'd this happen?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I also say I did not think of myself as a leader until my late 30s. I became dean of the Woodrow Wilson School in my mm-hmm. early 40s, and it really was uh, quite late that I started to think, yeah, I'm a I'm a leader. Uh, so I think a couple things. One, I think you have to find your own style. I read various books on leadership and looked at other leaders, and then I realized that, you know, I'm just never going to be – an Olympian leader. You know, there are people who have this kind of distant respect style that everybody respects and a lot of people fear. That's just not going to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not my personality. So figure out your own personality and and then build on that. Um, the most important thing is you realize you have to embody the institution. I remember a terrible Uh, blow at the Woodrow Wilson School, where my associate dean died uh, at a terrible accident. And it was a total shock to the community. Uh, And that, you know, at the day it was announced, we I called an assembly. And I realized it is up to me to create space for people to be able to grieve, to say things. I have to embody this institution at this moment because that's what it is to lead. And that can you can do that in fun and silly ways like creating, you know, f- funny parties or I used to, you know, donut Wednesday or whatever it might be. You can do it in very serious ways. You can do it in ways where you articulate the values of your institution, but you have to embody that institution which is what brings people together. Not just as a collection of people, but as employees or students or faculty or government employees.
0: You must have had some crazy schedules and have learned a lot about staying organized and just getting done what you need to get done. What is your routine like? And are there any like productivity hacks that you can share with us?
1: Yeah. First place, I rely a lot on other people, like I have a crew. Of people who make sure I don't miss important emails. Uh, I'm always running and I drop lots of balls. And so I have developed systems over the years uh, to correct for that. And the, the best advice I got as a leader was figure out what you're not good at and and recognize that it will not change. So it's, it's like dieting. Do not assume that even though, uh, you, you know, you've been eating chocolate cake every day for the last two years, tomorrow you're not going to want it. You have to really and, – and I learned that I'm a big-picture leader. I am not a super detail-oriented leader. I need to work with people who are detail-oriented and I need to to create safety nets for myself. And then I'm quite easy on myself. I mean, my my house is often a mess and, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that and write a book and be with my children. I mean, it's just not going to happen.
0: Hashtag balance. Uh, Um. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Right, right. But the last thing I'd say is take time off. This is the counterintuitive piece and people don't believe it. But I am much more productive because I build in six weeks of vacation a year. I build in reading time. I walk a lot. I'll come into New York and walk 30 blocks, uh, just not doing much of anything. I'm not on the phone. I'm not cramming every minute. I'm actually just letting myself think. And because I build in downtime, I'm much much more productive so I you know I'll go in spurts and be phenomenally productive and then you know have a day where I'm pretty lazy uh, or I'll you know be for a couple of weeks and then I'll have you know four or five days off um, but it's it's really true this idea that if you let yourself recharge and are pretty strict about what are your priorities you can get more done than if you work all the time
0: mm-hmm that's so cool. I need to go on a thirty-block walk. I think um, <laughs> that's great advice. It's great. So, unfinished business is your book. The paperback is out now. Anywhere books are sold, where can we
1: find you, Anne Marie, um, and stay in touch with you? <laughs> so you can find me at New America. Uh, you can. I also write a monthly column for the Financial Times, and every other month, I write for uh, something called Project Syndicate, and I'm pretty active uh, on uh, at Slaughter AM on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Don't use Facebook much. Uh, cool. So you can engage with me in all those ways.
0: Cool. Um, and my last question, which is a question that I ask all of our guests, um, which is what is your girl boss moment? And so, so a girl boss moment is just the time in your week. Maybe it is walking 30 blocks and taking that time to do something for yourself or it could actually be achieving something. It doesn't have to be personal care related, but it's just you know, a time to call out uh, a moment in our week that we stopped and uh, just nourished ourselves in in whatever area was important. What, Anne-Marie, would you say in the last week or so was your girl boss moment?
1: So my girl boss moment happens every day because I start every day. I get my cup of coffee and I take it back to bed and I read a novel or something that is not work for the length of time it takes me to finish my cup of coffee. And I start every day with this little blast of pleasure because I love my cup of coffee and I love the sort of before I plunge into the stream or the tidal wave, depending on what the day looks like, I'm going to create this little 20-minute oasis. Sometimes I, you know, I sip my coffee very slowly if it's a really (laughs) good book. Uh, But generally, generally it's 15, maybe 20 minutes and I'll get up earlier just to have that. And then I have to get my son up and whatever else. But some people meditate. For me, it's just a good book and a cup of coffee. And it's infinitely renewable. Oh, my God.
0: That's so cool. I can picture you doing that right now. Um, (laughs) It's so easy when you're busy and when you have things to do and you're a learner to just read nonfiction. And I found that in the last several years, all I do is buy and read nonfiction. And it's really strange if I buy anything, anything else. Um, What are you reading? What fiction can you recommend to us?
1: Oh, I love historical novels because I love to just escape. Uh, And so just over the past month and a half, I was on vacation for part of it. I read five enormous Ken Follett novels. There are two uh, that are about medieval England called Pillars of the Earth and World Without End. And then there are three... Ah, uh, called the Century Trilogy that track the United States and other parts of the world from 1908 to 2008 so they go through World War 1, World War 2, the Cold War and they're fabulous they have really great characters and you just can live in another world, that's the beauty of fiction—is that it allows you to escape. So it's like a mental vacation. Totally. Uh, if you know, good. Don't I don't. I mean, I sometimes read challenging, serious fiction. I do that too, but I love a good story. That's so cool,
0: Anri. Thank you so much for coming on Girl Boss Radio. This has been a pleasure.
1: I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Now for some girl boss moments. Girl boss moments are the time in your week where you feel like you're in control of your life. You're the boss of your life. You're a girl boss. It's your girl boss moment. That means getting a promotion, finishing your PhD. Who knows? Or maybe just having a moment of alone time. That's something I'm probably looking for right now. Whatever it is to you, you can send in your girl boss moments with the hashtag Girlboss moment on Twitter or Instagram. We find them. We put them together. I read them. We celebrate them together. You get to listen to them. Again, relive them. And we pull one out. We pick our favorite one each week and we put it on Girlboss.com where we publish all kinds of really great content every week. Megan Pollock says, did a fashion shoot today and someone just called me the creative director. BRB jumping for joy. Aw. Mallory says, still beaming after our fiscal year end meeting. Tripled our business in year two. Congratulations. Claire Croskson says, working day and night for VIP client of my hashtag smallbiz at the Verano Group. Got a 10K advance for the hard work. Damn. Miss Morgan, when you tell your fiance you put in for the promotion and he responds, get it, girl boss. Lol. Natalie Middleton says, Aw, had a couple articles published this week, and both editors complimented my work and said they enjoyed working with me. Thank you for sending in your Girlboss moments. We'll be back next week with more of them and another amazing guest. This is another episode of Girlboss Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thank you also to Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girlboss. You can sign up for a newsletter, Girlboss Diary, and read all kinds of amazing content at girlboss.com. And you can follow me, Sophia Amoruso, at Sophia with a P-H, Amoruso, A-M-O-R-U-S-O. Pretty much anywhere there is such a thing as social media. I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you to achieve your goals, or at the very least, provides some inspiration to you, or maybe just some inspiration to make a goal. Please help us achieve our goals. If you love the podcast, please give us a rating in iTunes, share us on social media, and definitely subscribe in iTunes. I think you also to the band Phases for our theme song. I'm Sophia Marusa. I'll be back next week.